Good morning, everybody. What a great day. You know, it's so nice outside. Some of you are going to want to stay around for the second service just to enjoy the beautiful weather. All right. <clears throat> well, we're back to Hosea this morning. Uh, briefly, I'm going to be away for two weeks, and uh, I'm not sure, but I think the, uh, the, uh, my helpers for the next two weeks will not be speaking in Hosea. Then I'll be back, and we're going to do a wrap-up on Hosea that week I'm back so that we're ready to begin uh, the Advent season. So that means that today, uh, since we only got up to chapter 6, we're going to take a big leap ahead to chapter 12. And uh, chapter 12 is one I have been looking forward to uh, getting to because uh, almost 50 years ago, when I was a seminary student, hard to think it was that long ago, I had a course in the prophets with uh, Bob Vinoy, who <clears throat> lived for many years right over near the Satterton home. And uh, Bob gave us a semester assignment. Semester assignment was we were supposed to translate the whole book of Hosea, which was a beastly job, and then we were to do a paper on any section of the book that we wanted to, and I chose chapter 12. Uh, and so I've never been back there to teach or to study it since, <clears throat> but I remember that, and I thought, well, this is my chance to figure out some of the stuff I didn't understand when I was there before. Uh, I still don't understand everything about this chapter, but it has intrigued me for many years. So we're going to be there. <clears throat> Where we've been so far in our study of Hosea is that we've seen that Hosea is a prophet of, uh, let's say, judgment and hope. We've talked about the great reversal, that as you read through this book, you suddenly find yourself making a dramatic shift from words of doom and gloom, <clears throat> that it's over for Israel, and uh, they're going to go into captivity, there's going to be destruction uh, on a broad scale, and, uh, and then suddenly, in the course of a single verse, you are in this wonderful section of encouragement and hopefulness that it is not all over for Israel. <clears throat> so the judgment is that Yahweh is about to divorce Israel for her adultery. That's the, the large figure that lies behind this whole book, the image of, of unfaithfulness in marriage. And that's the way uh, Israel is characterized, the worship of the Baals. <clears throat> giving uh, love, obedience, service, allegiance to gods other than Yahweh. And the hope is that God will continue to love Israel in spite of her unfaithfulness and that one day she will figure it out <laughs> and she will return that's the theme of repentance that is so strong in this book. She will return and seek the Lord, and he will be found 
by her. Uh, so that's this alternation of judgment and hope. Now, chapter 12, uh, our concern for today. Uh, <clears throat> it seems to me that chapter 12 talks about some of the root problems that led to this persistent unfaithfulness in Israel. So uh, follow as we read this chapter. Ephraim feeds on the wind. He pursues the east wind all day and multiplies lies and violence. He makes a treaty with Assyria and sends olive oil to Egypt. The Lord has a charge to bring against Judah. He will punish Jacob according to his ways and repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he grasps his brother's heel. As a man, he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged his favor. He found him at Bethel and talked with him there. The Lord God Almighty, the Lord is his name. But you must return to your God. Maintain love and justice and wait for your God always. The merchant uses dishonest scales and loves to defraud. Ephraim boasts, I am very rich. I have become wealthy. With all my wealth, they will not find in me any iniquity or sin. I have been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again as in the days of your appointed festival. I spoke to the prophets, gave them many visions, and told parables through them. Is Gilead wicked? Its people are <clears throat> worthless. Do they sacrifice bulls in Gilgal? Their altars will be like piles of stones on a plowed field. Jacob fled to the country of Aram. Israel served to get a wife. To pay for her, he tended sheep. The Lord used a prophet to bring Israel up from Egypt. By a prophet, he cared for him. But Ephraim has aroused his bitter anger. His Lord will leave on him the guilt of his bloodshed and will repay him for his contempt. Wow, that is a chapter that goes all over the place, and it's hard to follow. So let's try to pull some of the threads out and, and see if we can understand a bit of what's going on. <clears throat> I say a bit because there's a lot here that uh, I'm still trying to figure out. But let's get some of the major themes. And here's the big thing. It's the thing that actually 50 years ago attracted me to this particular section of Hosea, and that is the discussion of Israel's ancestor. Remember the family line, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, Jacob whose name is later changed to Israel, and that's part of what Hosea is playing on in this chapter. Sometimes you read Jacob and you're talking about the people of Israel, that's an alternative name given to the, to the nation, to the tribes. But other times, you realize you're not talking about the nation. You are talking about that ancestor, Jacob himself. 
And there's several points from Genesis. We've seen before that Hosea is, is very aware of the stories of the book of Genesis. And in this section, he pulls out different links to the Jacob story, Jacob the man. So we want to think first about Jacob's ancestor and what is being said here. Now, this is all complicated because uh, Hosea jumps around with the different names and he expects us to be able to follow what he's doing. And our Old Testament history often isn't real sharp and so we get lost in this. So he starts out with the name Ephraim. Ephraim feeds on the wind, verse 1. He pursues the east wind all day. Now, if you remember before, we said that Ephraim is the largest tribe of those northern ten tribes that separated in the Civil War. So Ephraim's the largest. So one way you can talk about the north is to, to call it Ephraim after the biggest tribe. Same thing happens in the south. South is called Judah, even though there's two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Judah is much larger. So you can say Ephraim for the north, or you can say Israel for the north. And remember that Israel is the alternate name for Jacob. And so Israel, Jacob, designates those tribes. Sometimes it designates all 10 or all 12 tribes from before the, uh, the Civil War. After the Civil War, Israel or Jacob can refer just to the 10 tribes. Are you thoroughly confused? Right? Well, there's a lot of history going on here, and Hosea doesn't stop to explain. He just assumes that you know, that this is, our, this is our family history, so we, you know, we understand it. So, he starts out talking about Ephraim, and then in verse 2 he says, the Lord has a charge to bring against Judah. Now, Judah is the south, and, and earlier on in this book, occasionally there's a jab at the south. The big concern is the north, but the south is following the same pattern. 150 years later, they're going to get destroyed as well. The Lord has a charge to bring against Judah. He will punish Jacob according to his ways. Now, that actually seems to be a place in which Jacob refers not just to the northern ten tribes, but also to the southern two tribes. It's the whole nation is called Jacob here. <clears throat> he will punish Jacob according to his ways, repay him according to his deeds. Verse 3, in the womb he grasped his brother's heel as a man he struggled with God. Now, all of a sudden, we've left the nation behind, right? And now we're talking about Jacob the man. Jacob's ancestor. Why does he get discussed here? Well, I think it's because Hosea sees that there's not just a familial link, but in terms of personality and behavior, there's similarities between the ancestor Jacob and his family, which is not a bad assumption to make, right? We, we understand that's the way families tend to work. So in verses 2 and 3, he talks about the history of Jacob the man who becomes Israel. 
And he points out three different things. First, he talks about Jacob's birth, Genesis chapter 25. And uh, the birth, you remember, is an unusual kind of birth because Jacob is a twin. He has a twin brother, Esau, and uh, Esau is the firstborn. And uh, he comes out all red. Uh, he has a lot, he's red-haired. And he's born first, but Jacob comes right on behind, and the thing that stands out in the story is this curious thing that as he comes out of the womb, his little hand is locked onto the heel of his brother Esau. And this is seen as very significant in the later biblical tradition. I mean, Hosea is picking up hundreds of years later that that's a significant point. Hosea has been thinking about these stories and what they mean. And uh, he's telling us this, this is significant. See, in the womb, he grasped his brother's heel. Would you select that as the important part of the story? Well, that's what Hosea does. Now, why, why does he pick up on this? Because the Jewish people have a, uh, what, a metaphor or an idiom, which is <clears throat> that grasping the heel <clears throat> is a way, <clears throat> excuse me, is a way of talking about somebody who is, what, devious? Somebody who is uh, wanting to get ahead, to take somebody else's position by whatever means possible. And we know the outworking of the, the Jacob Esau story is that Jacob desperately wants the blessing of the firstborn son. That's an advantage that he sees that he's going to get in whatever way he can. And Hosea, looking back at this story, as Esau does later in Genesis, sees it as significant that he is a heel grasper. He's out to pull his brother back, to check him, and to get what his brother rightfully should get, to get it for himself. So there's something about the character of Jacob that is, uh, what do we say, deceitful, manipulative. He's not a very likable character. What else can you say? He's not really somebody you want for a neighbor. You probably don't want to buy a car from this guy. There's a character flaw in Jacob, and it's symbolized already in his birth. In fact, even his name, Yaakov, comes from this word grasping the heel. So, you know, every time they called him for dinner, his mother Rebecca was thinking, yeah, that's who this kid is. <clears throat> He's trouble. 
So that's his birth. But then there's a second thing that is mentioned here from Genesis 32. In the womb, he grasped his brother's heel. As a man, he struggled with God. In Genesis 32, Jacob had to flee town to get away from his brother. Things got so bad. Years later, 14 years later, he comes back. And just before he meets up with Esau, he meets up with God. Uh, Actually, it says here an angel, but it's clear that the angel represents the Lord. And he's having a meeting with God here. And it's a wrestling match that goes all night. It's an extraordinary story, very mysterious. And uh, Jacob is so good and so strong. I can't imagine wrestling all night. I I was on the wrestling team years ago, and, you know, a a three-minute round left you uh, uh, difficulty breathing. So I don't know how they did it all night. Maybe they took coffee breaks or something like that, but... All night, and then at the end, the angel does something to uh, damage Jacob's hip, and he carries that with him all his life. But the interesting thing is, he, he meets God, and he, Hosea says, Hosea knows it's an angelic figure, but Hosea says, as a man, he struggled with God. It seems like this personality difficulty that he had, this flaw of grasping and and working to get his own will in the situation, carried over into his relationship with God. And, And so he wrestles with God, and God wrestles with him, you're not like that, are you? Well, I am. I guess you probably are. You know what it's like to have your own mind and want your own way and to sense that God is directing you in a certain path and saying, I don't really want that, or I'll ignore that, or I have a better idea of where I'd like to go. We, we can understand that, although this is a particular weakness with Jacob. And it goes, to, to some extent, goes through his, old, his whole life. And remember, we're talking about this because Hosea sees that there is a similarity between the ancestor Jacob and the nation Jacob-Israel. Now, there's a third thing that's picked up, and you see they aren't really in chronological order here, uh, and this is Genesis 28, although it shows up again in, in chapter 35 as well. In other words, it's before he, he has to flee town, and, or as he's fleeing town, and then it's, it's after he comes back, but he goes to a place called Bethel, and uh, that's the name he gives to it. Bethel means house of God. And in that first occasion, he's fleeing from Esau, and he goes to sleep in this one area out of doors, and, uh, and he has this vision 
of a, of a ladder going to heaven and angels uh, going up and down on the ladder. And Amy wakes and he says, this, this is the very house of God. Uh, so he encounters God early on in his life. And it leads gradually in Jacob to a conversion. That for all his bad qualities, there is something in Jacob, as in us, that God sees to be redeemable. It's not all bad news about his personality. There's some good strengths in it. And there's the possibility that God can transform even those weak areas of his character into valued things. And and so there's a conversion process. Conversion is another way to talk about repentance. We've, We've talked about repentance quite a bit in this Hosea study, this idea of turning, right? Conversion is part of that turning process and, and the emphasis is on the change that happens in our character. So there's a conversion that you can observe in Jacob's life that t- takes place gradually. And, and part of the way it takes place is that, that uh, the Lord takes Jacob to his uncle Laban's house. And, and uncle Laban is as much of a cheat as Jacob is. But now Jacob's on the receiving end. And he begins, I think, to get some insight into what he personally is like. That's part of the conversion. So there's negative things about Jacob, but there's this positive thing that Jacob is a man who has met God and he wants God. And Hosea makes that point for us. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged his favor. He wanted something from the angel, therefore from God. There is a seeking after God in Jacob that is commendable. That's Israel's ancestor. And and what Hosea sees in that, those Genesis stories, is that the current day Israel is behaving in various respects like their forefathers. Like father, like son, or like son, like father. And and here's the way he says it in verse 1. Ephraim feeds on the wind. He pursues the east wind all day and multiplies lies and violence. He makes a treaty with Assyria and sends olive oil to Egypt. He pursues the wind. That's a, a metaphor, I think, for doing what is futile or impossible. You can't catch the wind, right? You can try. Uh, You can pursue some wind and you can get hurt. The east wind is devastating because that's the wind off the desert, right? You ever watch the, uh, you ever watch the, the guys that, do the storm chasing. <clears throat> I've watched that program a few times. It's, it's kind of interesting. <clears throat> and, of course, they get their adrenaline. I guess they do it because of the adrenaline rush, you know, because you never know when you're chasing 
those tornadoes when they might turn the wrong direction, and, and so uh, it's, it's a bit of a game. <clears throat> well, Hosea says, Israel is playing a dangerous game pursuing the wind. What, what is his critique? What is he talking about? Well, he says, Israel makes a treaty with Assyria and sends olive oil to Egypt. If you remember the map we've had up occasionally, Israel is that narrow land bridge between the Mediterranean Sea and, and the Arabian Desert. And to the north is the superpower Assyria, and to the south is the superpower Egypt. And like superpowers do, they're always struggling back and forth, and guess who's in between? Little old Israel. And they have, of course, they have a potential to make out really well if they can, you know, if they can survive in between, because all the traffic has to go right through Israel. So there's potential for doing well, but there's a potential for a disaster. And what Israel seems to be doing is playing both sides of the street. They make a treaty with Assyria. And then they send olive oil, which may be a gift of tribute, sounds like it, to Egypt. That's, that's a dicey game, isn't it? Playing one against the other. There's a, uh, a good quote in Doug Stewart's uh, Hosea commentary I thought was to the point here. He says it was folly for Ephraim to look for security from any other source than Yahweh. Yahweh promised in his covenant to protect Israel from all dangers if they would remain loyal, but guaranteed trouble if they sought alliances elsewhere. Ephraim the alliance seeker was therefore Ephraim the idiot. Out, running around, chasing the wind, trying to catch it. He was attempting something impossible. I think that's the critique that Hosea has. You are trusting, like your forefather Jacob, the conniver, the worker of angles, the supplanter, the deceiver, like your ancestor Jacob, you are playing games with Assyria and with Egypt, and it's going to catch up with you. It's going to be bad. And the root problem is you're trusting in your own wisdom and strength rather than trusting in the Lord. Does that sound like maybe it's what's going on here? Jacob trusted in himself to work the angles. Ephraim was doing the same. Israel pursues the wind. They're not going to be successful. And out of that attitude of independence and doing whatever they could to get ahead, uh, deceiving, manipulating, Hosea says they multiply violence and injustice. As chapter 1 multiplies lies and violence, that's verse 7, the merchant uses dishonest scales and loves to defraud. And verse 14, the end of the chapter, Ephraim has aroused God's bitter anger. 
his Lord will leave on him the guilt of his bloodshed. So there's violence and injustice that now marks all of society. That sounds pretty contemporary, doesn't it? And as a result of this, Hosea says, their worship of the Lord is futile. So we've got another image here in verse 11. Do they sacrifice bulls in Gilgal? Their altars will be like piles of stone on a plowed field. The... uh, The altars for worshiping the Lord were not supposed to be tooled, right? They weren't to look like they were carved or shaped. They were more like piles of stone. And that's behind this comment then by Hosea. Their altars in Gilgal, Gilgal where they're sacrificing will be like piles of stone, well, that's what they were, on a plowed field. Piles of stone on a plowed field. That just gets in the way, right? One of the, uh, on my list from, the, from my farming days, of least desirable jobs, you know, you have those, Apart from, from digging manure out of old pens, uh, right up there with that was picking rocks. Every now and then, my uncle would get it into his head. It wasn't all the time, but every now and then, I guess when he felt we didn't have enough other things to do, he'd say, well, get the wagon and go up to such and such a field. And a bunch of rocks there. We just plowed that field. So he'd go out and load up the wagon with rocks and drive over to the side and dump them off and go back for more. What a job. But, of course, he was right in this, that you can't grow any corn on a rock. So you might as well get them out of there if you can. Hosea says, the Lord says through him, their altars where they think they are sacrificing to me They're just like piles of stone on a plowed field. It's wasting their time and mine for them to worship me. Because their attitude is too like the old Jacob. They want to do things in their own strength according to their own wisdom. And the result is that society at large is collapsing around them and they will not acknowledge the problem. So their religion is, is worthless. They may call out, as we saw in chapter 8, I think it is, our God, we know you. And Yahweh says, you don't know the first thing about me. Well, what's the remedy for change? There's a number of things in here that come as exhortations, and we've seen some of them before, but let's just look at them briefly. The first is, I think, to listen to the prophet. He goes back to the Jacob story in verse 12. He says, Jacob fled to the country of Aram, 
Israel served to get a wife, and to pay for her, he tended sheep. And then after that, near the end of his life, he went down to Egypt. Remember the famine that took the whole family to Egypt? But verse 13 says, The Lord used a prophet to bring Israel up from Egypt. And by a prophet, he cared for him. How did he do that? Well, he sent them Moses. And he led them out across the Red Sea. And he brought them to Mount Sinai. And there he gave them his law and his covenant. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And this is the way I want you to live. And after that, he continued to send them prophets. Verse 10, I spoke to the prophets, gave them many visions, and told parables through them. And I think at least part of what Hosea is saying to the people of his day, don't you see that God continues to speak? By implication, he's speaking through Hosea, right? And you need to listen. Think about your ancestor. For all his problems, Jacob went to Egypt, and he was delivered later from Egypt because God spoke to him, and God was at work in his life. So you need to listen to the words of the prophets, even though they may not be that agreeable to you. Listen to the prophet. And then, of course, the theme of repentance comes back again. Return and seek the Lord. Verse 6, but you must return to the Lord your God. Maintain love and justice. Wait for your God always. You must return and seek the Lord. Repentance, he keeps hammering that again and again. Without a turning back to the Lord, Israel is doomed. Verse 6 also, maintain loyalty. In the NIV, it says maintain love, but we've seen before that behind that is this Hebrew word hesed, which, which I do think is best, most consistently translated as loyalty or covenant faithfulness, something like that. It's a call back to Moses. It's a call back to the covenant. That's what you need to do, Israel. You need to learn faithfulness. Steadfast love. It's also frequently translated mercy, and we suggested uh, last week that, that mercy is the outgrowth of this faithfulness to the Lord. As we're faithful to the Lord, we begin to adopt His character, a character which is gracious and good toward all that He has made. So maintain loyalty. They're running after the Baals. They've been unfaithful. If you pick up the marriage figure again, they've been committing adultery. And Hosea is calling them back to their first love. And then also in verse 6, he says, maintain love and justice. Do justice. Now, here I think, friends, we we need to to pause and 
uh, do a little bit of historical thinking because in the evangelical and fundamentalist church, uh, I think we've made some big mistakes here. The, uh, the church in America, all the way back to colonial days, has struggled with the relationship between the understanding of the gospel and, and our personal relationship to the Lord and the implications that that has for the way we live corporately. And of course, Israel was struggling with that too, right? They were worshiping the Lord and, and there was widespread injustice in their society. But we've struggled with that in the American church. Certainly struggled with it in regard to the slavery question. Uh, we had leading theologians in this country who argued that, uh, that black slaves could find spiritual freedom in Christ, but that didn't mean that they should experience physical freedom, right? Major theologians, especially in the South, who who defended that in the Civil War era. In the uh, late 19th century, early 20th century, there was another gigantic split, especially within Protestantism, between theologians that later came to be designated as, as liberal and those, on the other hand, who were designated as conservative or fundamentalist. And this was a debate over what was called the social gospel. The the liberal side of that discussion tended to say, we need to try to apply the teachings of Jesus in our world. Now, We should be trying to live according to God's kingdom principles in this world, not just relegate all of that to the future. Now, in saying that, at the same time, they weren't very concerned lots of times about orthodox Christian faith, the Bible as God's word, or the resurrection of Jesus. On the other hand, the conservatives or the fundamentalists said, you know, we want to hold to orthodoxy. We want to maintain the fundamental truths of the faith. And we see that these liberals with their concern for a social gospel are going down the wrong trail. And so we're going to hold fast to the essentials and we're going to ignore or we're going to say that Those social gospel concerns aren't for us. Now, I I grew up in churches that were very impacted by that dispute. See, that that was the 20s and the 30s, but in the 50s and 60s, when I was a young man in church, that was still very much with us. So that, in the late 50s and 60s, when the civil rights movement 
hit heavy with Martin Luther King Jr. and so forth, our churches said Christians shouldn't be involved in that. And the result was, uh, as far as I can read it, the churches I was associated with, and I might say Bible churches as well, ended up on the wrong side of the Bible and the wrong side of history. And I see how it happened because there were a lot of those liberal Christians who were out marching, right? And we say, well, we don't want to be like the, marching, like the liberal Christians. We want to preserve the gospel. But the result was we didn't ask the question, where would Scripture have us be? What would God want from us? And the churches I was with, like I say, I think we missed it. So this is a hard question. Today, the, uh, the term is social justice, right? The same thing is being played out again, friends. There are some big-name Christian leaders who are deaf on any discussion of social justice. They're wiping that out. What are they doing? As far as I can see, they are largely repeating the problems of the beginning of the 20th century, 100 years ago. <clears throat> uh, I, I don't want to be there. Now, you could say, I think fairly, there's some stuff today that goes under the name social justice that I'm not convinced is justice at all. <laughs> or that Christians ought to be supporting. Agreed. But there's other things that definitely are in accordance with God's word, and the danger is we throw the proverbial baby out with the bathwater. Now, these are not easy days <laughs> to be the church, the church that follows the Lord. They're not easy days. There are no easy answers to these problems, but I do think that either the left or the right in their strong expressions, and of course today that's about all you get is the strong expressions, left or right. I am convinced in my own mind that neither of those works or is faithful to where Christians need to be. I really think we need that third way and we need to engage conversation about what that's like. There's very little good conversation happening these days, if you have observed. There's a lot of yelling. <clears throat> uh, there's a lot of name-calling. But there's not a lot of good conversation. So these are concerns that I have. Uh, <clears throat> the elders have concerns about this. Uh, we need to be aware and the big thing that we missed in the churches that I grew up in, we missed this theme of social justice. Or if you want to say community justice, we missed that theme in the prophets. Or if we didn't miss it, we ignored it. And uh, that's what we don't want to do. 
because Hosea and Amos, who's, you know, very strong on this as well, contemporary, uh, they saw the problem in their day, and now, thousands of years later, they still speak. It's still God's word to us. So, that said, uh, we'll have one more session in Amos, or in Hosea, in a couple of weeks, and then we'll be into Advent. Uh, got a couple of weeks. Continue reading Hosea, if you've been doing that, and absorb what you can, as much as you can, out of this very important little book. Let's pray together. Lord, we live in uh, challenging, challenging days. It's so easy for us to get co-opted by the right or the left to, uh, to listen to your word but not really to listen to it. It's just easy for us to be like Israel. Easy for us to be like Jacob. In fact, we all find that, <clears throat> that kind of Jacob root inside us of relying on ourselves, looking for our own solutions, trusting in our strength or our health or our wisdom or our connections. Lord, whatever it is, if it's not you, it's trouble. We want to be people that live out the message of Hosea, that we turn from idols, that we renew our commitment to you, that we seek to live with faithfulness and obedience in a world that just makes that really difficult. Lord, will you be our help? Will you send your spirit among us, not just as individuals, but as a church, and help us to find that way that brings joy to you and brings credibility to the message of the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.